This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We have been told to save all our lives. The unfortunate thing about poverty and senior poverty is that something happens. A loss of a spouse, a loss of a job, a loss of health, for instance. And that, regardless of what you put aside, you can very quickly spiral out of control. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. My name's Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, we usually focus on health, diet, exercise, sometimes spirituality, mental agility or mental health when we talk about the key pillars that go into living a long, purposeful life. But what about money, or more to the point, the lack of it? One in seven senior citizens in the US live in poverty. Growing old and living in poverty is a reality for many, and it is a huge problem. I'm joined by Dr. Paolo Narciso from the AARP Foundation, one of the largest public charities here in the United States. Dr. Narciso, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Great to be here. It's uh, such a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to see you. And uh, I want to talk about this very, very important issue that I think perhaps is undercovered, and that is poverty mm. and a lack of money as, as people grow old. But let me just talk about you a little bit and the, the foundation that you work for, AARP, of course, is probably, to those of us that live in the United States, everyone is very familiar with this organization. But for our wider audience, just tell us what you do. Sure. AARP Foundation is the uh, charity, the affiliate charity for AARP. And our mission is uh, to have a future without senior poverty. So as you said, one in seven are, uh, seniors are, are poor or in the poverty level, uh, that number is probably one of the few uh, subsets of our population that actually, where poverty actually is growing. Uh, every, everywhere else we're doing well, but, uh, or improving, but with seniors we are, in fact, going poorer. Uh, and when we have 10,000 seniors turning 65 every single day, that's a good number of people going into poverty every single day. So that's the uh, challenge that we have is is creating a future without senior poverty. Yeah, it is a growing demographic. And uh, as I say, I think people don't probably talk about this issue mm. as much as they should or even acknowledge that it's a problem. Uh, b- before we get into it, how did you get into this line of work? What's uh, been your career? Yeah, so my career is actually as very far away from anything to do with longevity or, or uh um, even in the nonprofit world, I have been a entrepreneur all my life, a technologist, had a, f- a few startups. Uh, some of them have done very well. Some of them have not. Um, retired after uh, one of my last startups and, and an exit. And that's when ARP called me and said, would you like to tackle, uh, use market and, and Silicon Valley style innovation and apply it towards senior poverty? And I couldn't think of a better place to spend the rest of my life. And that is that's interesting. So how are you applying then the Silicon Valley ways of doing things to tackling this problem? One of the things that uh, most people may not know about AARP or AARP Foundation is the fact that it's built on innovation. Our founder, Ethel Percy Andrus, um, started this company uh, when she actually was in fact retired. And her innovation was looking for a way to be able to provide retirement security for uh, public school teachers 
And she was, in fact, the principal of a school here in Los Angeles. And from there, only after seven years, was able to create the, the uh, organization that you know now as, as AARP, doing very, very innovative things that today we would think of as what we consider to be a lean startup process, right, where we look for evidence to be able to make decisions about what we do and how we start businesses and, and what particular products and services we introduce to the public. And that has been our continued DNA at AARP and AARP Foundation is to be able to uh, use the same lean startup process, use human-centered design, to be able to build solutions that are based on evidence that deliver outcomes. So we're not just interested in creating uh, new programs that are to sound great potentially from a charity perspective, but we want to be able to deliver programs that are sustainable. It means they can, they can stand on their own without additional donations or charity, and that they are, in fact, delivering a specific outcome. The ana- analogy I use all the time is if somebody wants me to start a new business and say you should start a book, a bu- become a bookseller, not Amazon. I think they've got that covered mm-hmm. already. But become a bookseller. And I say I'm going to sell a million books. And after I sell a million books, I'm going to give 10% of those books away to people in poverty. And that's all wonderful, and and, uh, that's certainly something that uh, we encourage. But we take it a step further. We want to see if those 10% that you actually gave the books to are actually improving improving with your literacy. So we're looking for outcomes in terms of how we develop our innovation. And that's the process that we use uh, internally at uh, at the foundation. So let's uh, dissect the problem. And uh, I mentioned the statistic, you've mentioned it as well, that uh, one in seven Mm -hmm. of older people, senior citizens here in the United States, are living in poverty. How did we get to a position like that? Well, that's that's a tough question. I think partially is because of the fact that our uh, our services, the social services that we offer, aren't, do in fact have, um, have gaps. And uh, you know, those services have whittled down over the years. And that has then created even a larger gap where we have a growing number of seniors who are going into poverty. So I think it is a lot to do with policy. And uh, a lot of that also is cultural, and those are the things that we have, and behavioral, and those are the type of things that we need to uh, address. And so how are you addressing it? Where do you start to try to tackle and to resolve a problem like this? So we uh, focus on four different areas. We focus on um, economic security or income security. Uh, How do we make sure that you have enough money to cover your expenses? Uh, the second uh, challenge that we look for is housing security. How do, we, how do we make sure that you can age in place if that is, in fact, where you want to live and be able to stay in your home and in your community? The third is in, um, in food security, making sure you have access, uh, not only access to the right foods, but also improve your dietary consumption, right, to become healthier. And then lastly is the issue of social isolation, that as you, as you age, you continue to increase your social connectedness and your social support, um, which traditionally decline uh, over time. So those are the four areas that we focus on. And, and, and when we look at poverty in general, those are the four, senior poverty in general, those are the four symptoms of senior poverty that we're trying to, uh, trying to address. We actually, um, and so in our innovation process, what we do is we um, spend quite a bit of time. We have a team of social entrepreneurs that spend quite a bit of time on the streets uh, talking to uh, seniors, talking to um, uh, older Americans um, as they obviously age in the cohort that we actually want to, to, uh, to serve. And then find 
where they're having challenges in those particular areas and find solutions for those particular challenges based on the evidence that we uncover while we're on the field. Obviously, we support it with with secondary evidence, um, academic evidence, and so forth. Um, but uh, we definitely we are looking for solutions that are uh, able to scale, and and we look at it across those four particular areas. Looking at the the problem of people simply having enough money to live their daily lives, mm. which I think is probably uppermost in most people's minds as they are getting older and anticipating their old age. And we're living through times where, for so many people, it is just a matter of earning a wage and spending it every week and not really giving any thought to what it's going to be like when they are 60, 65, 70 years old. And so the problem starts, and presumably any solutions to the problem start quite early in life. They have to. We have been told to save all our lives. Um, I have been saving since I can remember in, in, in piggy banks and little jars and, and cups, coffee cups to put whatever spare change I find in, in my pocket. I've heard that all my life and put money away throughout my life. All of us have. The unfortunate thing about poverty and senior poverty is that oftentimes even people that we are serving have done all the right things, but something happens. They, a loss of a spouse, a loss of a job, a loss of health, for instance, and that regardless of what you put aside, you can very quickly spiral out of control. So those are concerns of us as well. It's not just you haven't started early. Many people have. But we also have to consider those who have, in fact, done all the right things, but yet are finding themselves in the situation as they as they age. But going back to the question around starting early, yes, we absolutely need to be able to continue to drive the message that we should start early. But we can also, fortunately with technology today, look for ways to be able to help people save. There are lots of apps that help people do that. They've been fairly effective. And when you forget about the digits, a good example, for instance, of that, where you'll, you don't know that it's putting aside money that you will never need. Um, and next thing you know, you have hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars uh, put aside in a, in a savings account for, uh, for a rainy day. Unfortunately, some of those technologies don't work for poor people. They don't spend enough. They don't have enough money in their account. uh, And there's so much income volatility. But there still is a chance for us from a technology perspective to be able to use algorithms, use behavioral economic principles, to be able to create solutions uh, that are, in fact, technology-enabled as we move more into a technology-connected world that will allow for people who who are not as uh, affluent or who don't have uh, as much money as others to be able to take advantage of these technologies. We're trying to do that today uh, with with ARP Foundation. We are launching an app or program that use those principles around behavioral economics to help people, in fact, save. An example of that, when you talk to seniors who potentially may not have saved, uh, they say, well, I don't have enough money to save. Like, well, I, I, that was going to be my yeah. my thought there, that it's all very well having the app sure. and the technology. Yeah. But if you're living every week and spending every penny that you have on just getting through that week, yeah. how do you save? Yeah, so we, we find ways to be able to do that and use the right nudges for you to do that. So, for instance, if you use one of our products and, and what we've done um, when we have done the testing on the field is we create challenges. People love challenges, Right. And the challenge is, for instance, just walk around and anything you see on the streets or on your, on your couch, put it aside. That's your first challenge. Don't even think about putting money aside from your own paycheck. And we find that most people, on average, 
are able to, who are in the challenge, save about $31 a month. So the great thing about about human behavior is when they start seeing success, they want to keep adding to it. So that's their first challenge. And oftentimes when you take that challenge, you start putting it aside, you then put it away in a savings account. Then you start seeing it grow because there's some interest in that. But you're also now saying, hey, I can do this. I can look for ways to be able to put some money aside. And ultimately, in fact, when we do this, the average uh, savings that people can do over six months is over $1,200 which is pretty amazing for people who believe that they do not have any money to put aside in, in the first place. And once they do that, they can start thinking also about long-term asset building, right? So they become, they, they become investors, and that's also a very empowering uh, mindset to have. So we want to attack it not just with behavior, uh, not just with IQ, but also how to change mindset. And there are ways to be able to do that, not just obviously with technology, but technology can certainly enable that. And, and that mindset that you talk about, it isn't just a, a fiscal mindset. Mm-hmm. If you believe that you are going to grow old and, and hopefully stay healthy as you grow old, and, and we talk a lot about that, of, mm-hmm. of achieving that health span. But if, you, if the cloud hanging over you was that you would get to a great age, but you wouldn't have any money, well, perhaps there isn't much incentive there to do all of the other things in life that will enable you to get to that great age and still be healthy. So if you're in that saving mindset and that that concern is, is perhaps taken away from you to some extent, that you're, you're not going to get old and have no money and not being able to cope, the bigger picture is all going to be positive. Yes, I think so. And and that is actually uh, the mission of AARP and Dr. Andrews when she started the company. It, it is, we want to have purpose throughout our lives. And as we have that purpose, it allows us to be able to live the life that we want to live. And that purpose might be supported by just a little bit of savings that you know you have there. But we find something really interesting with older Americans in, in, uh, in the United States where they oftentimes won't save for themselves. They will save for somebody else, however. We see that in churches. People will tie 10% of their income despite the fact they don't have anything for themselves. They always are willing to give back. And so we just have to take that mindset and have them pay themselves as well You know, as they, they build that. But that's one of the beauties of the, the American mindset, but also one of the, uh, again, the rooted in our, our, our founder's uh, mission is let's give them purpose as well as um, the tools to be able to achieve that purpose. What does that tell you about people that we're prepared oftentimes to, to give for others or give at the church before we give or save for ourselves? Oh, I, I like a world where people think that way and people feel that way, right? You know, I'm not a psychologist or, uh, or a neuroscientist, but I have a lot of hope, despite all the issues that we have, when people are, in fact, thinking that way. Saving for their kids, saving for their grandkids, is uh, saving for others in their community is much more important. And those are the type of things that you know, make us proud to be able to live in this country. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. 
And of course, the other one of the other great concerns of people as they get older is that their health care is going to cost more. Mm. Cost more because they will be older and they believe probably will call upon the services of, of hospitals and doctors because they will need them and that they will get old and they won't have the money and they won't have the coverage necessary to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Is that something that you're looking at? We are. We are looking for the solutions that are not just long-term solutions, issues where I've got to be able to reduce my health care costs. Um, in fact, today at USC Body Computing Conference, where we are today, uh, the study that we are working with that USC has, commissioned, has, has uh, uh, um, done for us um, is, in fact, focused on, on, on seniors that miss their medical appointments because they can't get there from a transportation perspective. Now, the study is obviously much broader than that. We look at social connectedness and mobility um, in a larger sense. But the, the seniors do think that, well, I'll just postpone my health care because I can't afford it at this particular time. So we do have to find solutions for that. We are today looking at those specific solutions in our innovation pipeline. How do we provide seniors the ability to even use, to be able to have a copay so that they will, in fact, go see uh, a doctor. We look at the issue of medical debt. How do we alleviate medical debt? And how do we prepare for those particular expenses that we know are coming? So those are some of the very difficult challenges that we are, in fact, trying to solve. And I guess to some extent, it's about collaborations, isn't it? This isn't something that just one organization can tackle. And I remember at the conference, this conference last year, I chaired the session looking at the seniors that would cancel their doctor's appointments because they didn't have the means to get there. And I know Lyft is doing some some good work in that respect to to help people to get to their doctor's appointments. And, and there we have, and one of the big themes of that discussion that we had last year was collaboration, that we have a number of organisations here that you might not immediately think are related to senior citizens and their wealth or lack of it, but together, an organisation like Lyft and, and others pulling together can work together to resolve a problem. Yeah, Peter, you're absolutely correct. Um, one organization can't solve this problem. The government on its own can't solve the problem. It requires collaboration. People who are like-minded, companies who are like-minded, to try to solve this particular solution and to be able to to craft together these these solutions that, that sometimes even as we design them are not necessarily designed for seniors. They're not necessarily designed for poverty. But there are components of, that, of those solutions we can put together that uh, are able to address these particular challenges. So that is uh, something that we, uh, a principle that we obviously pursue is, uh, can we find like-minded organizations that will work with us, and others are looking for us as well, that, we'll, uh, that we can work with to be able to uh, find and develop these uh, type of solutions. In fact, all our innovation today, the principle of our innovation is, we're not gonna build it ourselves, we have to find partners that can scale and partners that can provide the, all the, the different uh, components that will, in fact, provide that final solution. We've uh, obviously got a, a global audience for this podcast. And this issue, I think, changes according to the country that you're in. And different administrations, different governments, of course, have different approaches to healthcare. And let's just say if you compare the United States with the United Kingdom, where in the United Kingdom you have a very different publicly funded health 
service free at the source, whereas here it is very much dependent on the private sector. I'm curious, have you looking, perhaps studying other nations and other ways of doing things? Is there something that you've learned from overseas or other places where they approach this problem in a, in a different way that, that could benefit this country? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, from a policy perspective, which, a, which ARP uh, focuses on, foundation doesn't focus on policy. We, we focus specifically on, on delivering programs and solutions. But they do, in fact, inform us. And the uh, ARP, our public policy group, has, in fact, looked at the programs that are being delivered across different countries to be able to find what might work for us and how we might be able to influence similar policies and similar changes here in the United States. From a solution perspective, though, we have looked at solutions that are that have been, in fact, implemented in other countries. In fact, one of the solutions that we are were very interested in was uh, the Amtiba um, solution in Kenya, where people were paying for their health care using their phones. And also, the, the great thing about that particular solution is it also allowed people to control kind of the, the outcomes and the quality of that. You had to rate the service that you were getting before uh, they were actually paid, before the provider was actually paid. So it put the control of that into uh, the hands of those who were, in fact, uh, in poverty. They were, they were, uh, it was a solution that was delivered for uh, people in poverty areas in, in Kenya specifically. But more than that is some of the behavioral principles we learned from that. What, when, and it, in fact, was a saving solution, right? I put money aside. How do you help people put money aside? Uh, and those behavioral economic principles are the principles that we would, in fact, want to apply in the solutions we're trying to do today. So that's a, a one example of how someone else is doing it, another country is doing it, that we can apply it here in the United States. And, of course, different cultures have different attitudes towards not only saving, but how we care for those aging populations. Yes. Um, you know, Japan and, and China, the Philippines, all the, the different countries, older people are revered in those particular countries, not so much here in the United States. And that is does, in fact, impact the problem. And that those solutions and those changes will take time to be able to change culture, to be able to change mindsets, to be able to think about our seniors and how we are able to treat those and how we support them. Why is that, do you think? Why is it that there are different attitudes? And you highlight the fact that in this country, older generations are not revered or perhaps even respected as much as they are in, in other countries? So I, I don't know the answer Neither to, do I. To, yeah, to that, to that question and why, we, we why our mindset is very different in the United States. I, I can certainly guess and have my own opinions about uh, uh, some of the things that have occurred over time in historically our culture. But it is the challenge that we have. It's we have a totally different mindset. And what it's, it's interesting because even before coming to AARP, I never... I didn't think about the issue of senior poverty. My parents were, were fortunate enough to be well taken care of and well off as, as, as they've obviously, as they've aged, and their friends have. So we don't see the same, I didn't see the same thing. Then coming to ARP Foundation, uh, working in the innovation uh, process, uh, talking to thousands of people, interviewing thousands of people, it opened my own eyes in terms of how I look at older people. And... That is the interesting thing about poverty is it's also what I learned. It's, it's not the person on the street that looks poor that is poor. Senior poverty, the face of senior poverty is so multifaceted and surprising. And so people that look just fine 
will be in this particular issue. So we have to look through those and kind of better understand how we might change our own behaviors and our own attitudes. And if we start there, I think potentially um, we will have a better future. I'm curious, in terms of your own life, from the work that you do, what have you learned that has perhaps colored the way that you live your life and some of the decisions that you make? So my defining moment for me and, and is when I was uh, a uh, uh, junior and senior in high school, I got to work in a refugee camp. This is the, I'm, I'm going to age myself, but this is the uh, uh, time during uh, a lot of the Vietnam refugees and, and uh, Laotian Cambodian uh, refugees coming through. And I uh, had a chance to work in a refugee camp. They put me in a job, which I, I thought was a great job, which was in refugee camps, at least back then, I don't know how they are now, as people are applying to come to different countries they create little villages that mimic that particular country and you know, houses that look the same as you'd see in Main Street, USA. Uh, I was the bank teller in that little town, and my job was to help people open bank accounts uh, and to help people actually start businesses, right? A lot of, a lot of people wanted to start businesses. What I learned and, and what really motivated me was here you are, you, you have a person that has just left everything behind, and they're now here, or they're not even in the United States yet. So they're still living in a refugee camp. But they were so positive about their particular future and, and, and were so resilient. And they wanted opportunity and they wanted to be able to start their own businesses and do, and, and do things anew. That is something I've learned the rest of my life is, one, is the resilience of people. Two is the desire for opportunity, for economic opportunity, and how do, we, how do I create that? So as I've started my businesses, my number one goal was not how much money um, we put away. It was, I, I measured our success based on how many employees we hired. So that's what's probably uh, kind of colored my, uh, my lens uh, as, as I've uh, gone through my career. With the, perhaps the thought that ultimately it isn't about money. That's right. It isn't about money. Where we come into this world yeah. with nothing and we, you know, we leave oftentimes with nothing. But that isn't the key assessment of how we've lived our lives. That's right. And what you'll see and what you saw, what I saw in the refugee camp was about family. It's about connections and about the community and, uh, and how strong those bonds were. For them at that time, just being with your family was success, right? Taking it a step further um, and going to the United States and, op and opening up a shop and things of that nature was icing on the cake. But for them, it was about community, and that's also something I've learned. I just want to ask you, I know you're a, an athlete, or you have been an former athlete. athlete yes. Former athlete, yes. <laughs> uh, an Ironman competitor yes. on several occasions. Yes. You don't do it now. I'm on leave for now. You're yes. on leave for now. But uh, that, that is quite an achievement as someone who's, who's done triathlons, not, never quite at the same distance as you. How did managing to do that, how did training and achieving that, how did that affect you? So Ironman is life-changing. It, it, I could sit here and talk about Ironman forever and, and how it changes you. You go through, uh, and I, I tell this a lot to people who ask me about it, it's the Ironman isn't just that day in that particular race. It is about all of the training you put in, in you put before that particular day. That day is just a celebration of all the things you've done before, before the starting line. 
so knowing that it, it is about preparation and so knowing that I can prepare and that I know how to prepare for something that would be difficult. In business and in Ironman, there are times during the day, especially when it got dark at night, when you were running and couldn't get there, where you just wanted to quit. I call that the messy middle, right? There's times in business also where life isn't, it's not going to be all fun and games. We've got to kind of kind of bull our way through that, right? And, uh, and so that's what I've learned from Ironman is, is might look hard now, but just keep moving and the next mile might be a little bit better. And so that's, the, that's what I've learned from, from doing Ironman. And it might, some people, be an extreme, but the principles that are involved could apply to any of us. It could, yeah. It could absolutely apply to, to, to any of us. Let me just ask you, if anyone's interested in finding out more about the work that you do, especially as it applies to older people and poverty, is there somewhere they can go to online? Yes, um, obviously, aarpfoundation.org. Uh, is our website. We talk about the programs that we have that we're currently running at AARP, but we also talk about our innovation and our innovation process. We're always looking for people to collaborate with. So if you have an idea, definitely reach out and and, uh, would love to pursue it. Dr. Paolo Narciso, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. And I will, of course, put the details uh, of your website and, and the work that you do into the show notes for this episode of the Llama podcast. You'll find those at llamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. We are recording this episode at the annual Body Computing Conference at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. And I'll also include a link in the show notes to the conference. And I know that uh, in the months to come, you'll be able to watch the videos of the sessions of uh, speakers, some of whom we were speaking to on this podcast. Many thanks to everyone at USC for your hospitality today and help with the podcast. And thank you for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.